Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I, if my guest today has a red, red right hand, I don't know, but the guys we are going to talk about certainly do. Today we're going to talk about the real Peaky Blinders and going to see how accurate is the show. Please welcome Professor Carl Chin. It's a pleasure to have you on board, Carl. Thank you very much, Erlen. It's nice to be joining you and your listeners. And as always, I usually ask how you people get involved in their certain profession, but, I, but from watching the documentary that you made with BBC, I understand that you do have a personal connection to this gang of Peaky Blinders, don't you? Yeah, I've been researching the real Peaky Blinders since the mid-1980s. I first wrote about them in my doctoral thesis. The thesis wasn't about the Peaky Blinders. It was about my dad's part of Sparkbrook in Birmingham and working-class neighbourhood. But I wanted to look at the context of Birmingham in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And all the history books about Birmingham, concerning Birmingham, talk about Birmingham being the city of a thousand trades, something we were very proud of. Talk about it being the best governed city in the world. Again, we were proud of that. But none of them mentioned that it was also one of the most violent cities in England. The not to be so proud of. You know, not to be so <laughs> proud of. So I researched them in the mid-80s. I'd heard about the Peaky Blinders growing up. My mum is from Aston, another big working class area in old Birmingham. My dad, Sparkbrook, as I mentioned. I grew up better off, but my mum and dad were very working class. Culturally, they uh, instilled in me a belief that that's where we come from and belong to. And all my mum's family was still living in badly built houses in Aston. I worked, we were a, a family of bookmakers taking bets on horse racing. So I worked in the shops in Sparkbrook and lots of older people talked to me about their memories. I was only a kid of 13, 14, 15. My family on my mum's side and dad's side were all storytellers. And I'd heard about the Peaky Blinders growing up that really like other older Brummies from my background, that they uh, supposedly stitched disposable safety razor blades into the peak of their So that's actually accurate from the series? No, it's a myth. It's a myth. I'll tell you about that in a moment. And then mm. they would take them off their heads and slash the forehead of their enemies, mm. hence causing blood to go in their eyes to blind them. In the series, it says the eyes. Well, there's a problem with slashing the eyes. The bridge of the nose stops it. But the story I was told, another older brothers, was the forehead. So I'd heard about them growing up. I'd written about them and realised that they didn't use the disposable razor blades and the flat cap. I'd also heard about a man called Edward Derrick, who was my great-grandfather, my father's maternal grandfather, who I knew growing up. I'd never met him, but through the stories that were told in the family, he was a violent man, he was abusive to my great-grandmother, and he was a petty thief. And then many years later, before, well before the series came out, I was doing my research, 
and I was involved with the West Midlands Police Museum, which has a magnificent collection of photographs of criminals from the 1870s onwards. And lo and behold, I came across a photograph, two photographs indeed, of my great-grandfather, Edward Derry. And he was wearing a flat cap, one of the signs of a, a Peaky Blinder, not the only one, because many men were wearing flat caps, but the main sign was what was called a daff. It was like a silkish type of a material, not silk, obviously, because that was too expensive, but that kind of material, finished, that was twisted around the neck. That was called a daff. And that was the uniform of the Peaky Blinders. I then found his criminal record. He was a petty thief. I then found out that one of the crimes he committed was attacking the police, which was something the Peaky Blinders did a lot. They hated the police. On another occasion, he was in prison for three years for attacking a man with a shovel. When that didn't knock the man out, he attacked him with a meat cleaver, a chopper, and chopped it into his head. Ooh. Luckily, the man survived. And then I found papers relating to his abuse of my great-grandmother. So my great-grandfather, Edward Dellick, who died in the early 1960s, whom I didn't know, was a real Peaky Blinder. Mm. And I, I do believe they show a photograph of him in the documentary series as well, they if did, I remember yes. correctly. So, as, as we know, the main character in the TV series is Thomas Shelby, but he, the way I understood it, he's kind of inspired by someone else. So who was the real... Thomas Shelby. The, the, the two characters I want to bring in here. The author of the series, Stephen Knight, has done a wonderful job for Birmingham. In, it's brought Birmingham, this series, onto the world stage. And it's drawn a lot of attention to Birmingham. But we also must bear in mind that Birmingham isn't the city of the Peaky Blinders. And that gangsters are not glamorous men who should be admired. Mm. So whilst enjoying the series, we must understand it's drama. It's not reality. Now, the author said that the idea came to him when his dad told him a story about being sent on an errand to his father's maternal uncles called the Sheldon family. Were you consulted by the series uh, when, when they were writing? No, I've had no connection at all with the series, at all. And the Sheldons, Stephen Knight, the author's maternal father's maternal uncles, are the ones that spoke to give the story, the ones that give him the kernel, the germ of the idea. The Sheldons, Erland, were a notorious group of brothers. There were five of them. Two were honest and decent. Three were vicious, vile and violent. They were three of the worst criminals in late 19th and early 20th century Birmingham. They were violent men, very violent men. They were robbers, thieves, and they were bullies. And in, between 1908 and 1912, Samuel Sheldon, who was only five foot one and a quarter, but one of the most fearsome men in Birmingham, his brother John and Joseph and their gang were involved in the worst gang war in Birmingham's history that went on for four years with a hard man called Billy Beach, who fought only with his fists and a group of men that gathered around him. And that gang war finally ended in 1912 with severe sentences passed down by a judge. And it was known as the last of the Peaky Blinders. Now, by the 1920s, the Sheldons were really a, a spent force. They were aged men in their 50s. So although the germ of the idea came from a story about the Sheldons, it would seem that Tommy Shelby as a gang leader 
has more in common with a real gang leader called Billy Kimber. Mm. Which is one of the main villains in season one. So in season one, he's the main villain. Now, do you remember how he's portrayed in season one? He's shown, Yeah, as a small Londoner. Yeah. He wasn't a small Londoner. He was a big, burly Bromley from the back streets of Summer Lane, a very tough part of Birmingham. Billy Klimber was England's first major organised crime gang leader. People thought older, uh, if you read older gang books, they will all say he was a Londoner. The reason being is that Kimber left Birmingham to live in London in 1910. By the 1940s, when he died in 1945, nobody really remembered him in Birmingham except a few of his family members. So apart from his descendants, from his first wife's two daughters, who have been in touch with me, the Kimber name in regards to Billy Kimber died out in Birmingham. So all the old gang books thought he was a Londoner. I knew he wasn't. Back in the late 1980s, mid to late 80s, I was researching a book about illegal bookmaking. Cash betting away from the race course was against the law in England until 1961. My granddad was an illegal bookmaker from 1922. My dad was an illegal bookmaker until it was legalised in 61. And I was a legal bookmaker before I changed professions and became a teacher, writer, etc. Now, Billy Kimber had moved to London. And how I knew this was that I was researching a book about illegal betting. And in 1987... I interviewed a number of very old London bookmakers who told me about the real Billy Kimber, that he was a Brummie. Sorry about that. That he was a Brummie, just like you, Carl. Mm. They told me about the real Derby Sabini, another gangster that features in the series, and the real Alfie Solomon. Which we will come back to eventually. Yeah. So Billy Kimber, far from being a Londoner, as portrayed in the series, uh, and as indicated in older books on gangsterism, was a brummie. He had been a Peaky Blinder. He got arrested like my great-grandfather for petty theft, for attacking the police and other violent crimes. But uh, compared to my great-grandfather, who remained a petty thief and a violent man and a backstreet thug, Billy Kimber moved out of Birmingham to become England's first major organised crime leader. So how does he rise in this uh, so crime? First of crime? All, how does he rise? First of all, Erland, he's a feared fighter. There's a powerful punch. His favourite punch was to hit men in the solar plexus. I interviewed a man whose father was a great friend of Billy Kimber in London, and he said what would happen when he hit him with his powerful pen, punch they would soil themselves. Mm. So not only are they doubled up in pain, but they're embarrassed as well. They're humiliated. He's a formidable fighter, but he's got a brain. By the early 20th century, Billy Kimber has moved from the back streets. At the time, the Peaky Blinders are disappearing for a variety of reasons, and he's become one of the Brummagem boys. This is the term given to a loose grouping of pickpockets and racecourse rogues. They used to operate in small groups of six, seven and eight. And they would travel, thanks to the train system, the race courses of the Midlands of England and the North of England, pickpocketing and blackmailing bookmakers for money. Why were they able to do this? Because there were very few policemen on the race courses and most of those that were there were intimidated or took bribes. 
and there were no racecourse security personnel. So racecourses were a happy hunting ground for ruffians. Corruption was high there, I see. Yeah, what are people carrying as a racecourse? Cash. Mm. So that's what attracted them there. Billy Kimber had a small gang with his brothers Joe and Harry and some of the men. But by 1910 at the league, probably 1910-11, he has pulled this loose collection of roles called the Brummager Boys into a slightly better organised fashion. And they dominate the rackets in the Midlands of the North. So you're a pickpocket and a gang from, let's say, Leeds. You want to pickpocket at Doncaster, which is in Yorkshire by Leeds. You can't just pickpocket there. You've got to pay tribute to Billy Kimber first. You have to ask his permission. Now, what he does, Erland, he recognises there are more race courses down south and there's more money in the south of England. So about 1911, he moves to London. He's very clever. He's powered up with a man called George Sage, a gangster from Camden Town in North London. But this is very, very clever. He powers up with a South London gang as well, the Elephant Boys from the Elephant Castle. And just before the First World War, it seems that he's taken control of the rackets down south. The war comes. Racing is mostly stopped because it's seen as unpatriotic. Kimber joins up, but then deserts. I find him in 1917 in Ireland, arrested in Dublin for pickpocketing. Why? Because racing continued in Ireland and he was arrested on the day of the Leopardstown races. So after the war, Kimber comes back to London he teams up again with the Elephant Boys and the Camden Town mob. In the Midlands of the North, the Birmingham gang, as they're now known, rule with a rod of iron. But in the South of England, there is a, a anarchy. Different gangs are coming in, extorting money from the bookmakers. And Kimber seems to take over, but he does take over in 1920. In effect, Ireland, in the absence of proper policing and security from the racecourse authorities, he brings law and order. You're only paying one gang. So by 1920, Kimber is in charge down south. There are massive pickings because after the war, you have a huge amount of pent-up promotion. Lots of men coming back from the army and the navy with payoffs from the army and navy. Most of them go home, but many of them want to go to sports events, especially racing. So there's huge crowds at racing and increased opportunities for pickpocketing, and black money bookmakers. Doesn't he use kids as well to pickpocket from the rich and the... And the I yeah, people think, say, of this, this has happened, and, uh, and the documentary that I wrote, uh, was involved with, one older bookmaker said that youngsters would be sent around pickpocketing. I haven't actually come across the evidence myself, so I can only speak for what I found out from the evidence of 40 mm. years' research. Mm. So, as we approach the 20s, as we were talking about, the birth rate is enormous as well, especially in the working class era, considering not everyone survives in a poorer, poorest condition, the children's and death rate as well is enormously high, I, I believe, because of lack of food and lack of equipment. So, how does this have to help kind of organize crime, the birth rates? I think there's two issues there. One, the birth rate is declining by the mm. 1920s, except amongst mm. the poor. Where the birth rate was very high and where there was this population explosion is in the mid-19th century. 
Now, that's the time when the real Peaky Blinders forebears the sloggers emerge. You have large numbers of young men. The majority of the population is under 30. And on a Sunday afternoon, the Lord's Day, when they should be at church, many of these young men, on their only day off from work, they work Saturdays as well, their only day off, they gather on waste ground by their streets and they play rough sports and they gamble for money. That angers the middle class, some of whom are still living in the central parts of Birmingham and Manchester. Same thing happens in Manchester, gangs emerge called Scotlands. In Birmingham, the gangs emerge because the police are pushed by the middle class to put down the gatherings of the young men. And that leads to reactions. And the reaction is the emergence of street gangs. And these gangs from 1872 are called sluggers. From an old word from barefisted boxing to slog was to hit with a fierce blow. And what emerges by the mid to late 1870s is lots of gangs erupt in different streets. They fight each other. They attack the police. They hate the police. And they bully the decent, hardworking poor amongst whom they live. Birmingham has a massive backstreet gang problem, as does Manchester and Salford with the Scotlers, as does Liverpool, as does much of North London, East London and South London with what were called from 1898 hooligans. There are little gangs elsewhere in places like Sheffield and Leeds, but the worst gangsterism in England was in Birmingham, Manchester, Salford, Lib London and Liverpool. Now, these gangs, these backstreet gangs, Erland, are not like Billy Kimber's gang. They are territorial. They're fighting each other. They're fighting the police. They're engaging in a bit of petty bullying. They'll go into a pub and demand a free drink for them and their mates. Or if not, they'll smash the pub up. But overwhelmingly, they're fighting to assert their masculinity mm. and their hardness. From 1890... A new term comes in for the backstreet gangsters of Birmingham, Peaky Blinder. Mm. A young man called George Eastwood goes into the Rainbow Pub, which is still there on the corner of High Street Broadley and Derry Tend. Uh, sorry, High Street Broadley and Adley Street, just up from Derry Tend. It's a Saturday night. He's having a little drink, but it's a teetotal drink. He doesn't drink alcohol, he's drinking a ginger beer. And three men with an evil reputation come in. They're local sluggers, and they start to insult him for having a ginger beer. And there's a, an argument, and eventually it's broken up, and they leave. And poor George must think, well, I'll leave now, after they've gone. And when he turns out the pub, he has to turn left into a, a very quiet part of the street. That's where the photograph of me is taken, under two railway arches. And they come out the shadows and they brutally assault him. They kick him with hobnail boots, they punch him, and they use their main weapon, which is a buckled belt. They would wrap the belt round their wrist, catch hold of it in the palm, leave about eight inches, buckle it and slash. George is in hospital for three weeks with terrible injuries. In the newspapers on the Monday, it said the attack was carried out by the gang of Peaky Blinders. That's the first time the term, in March 1890, the first time the term Peaky Blinders was used in the press, which suggests to me, Erland, that it's been used on the streets well before that. Now, we've had an episode about the Italian mafiosi a while back now with Alexander Stille. Um, where, where was this gang as organised as the Italian mafiosi or was it just kind of all over? 
So very important to bear in mind. The Peaky Blinders was not one gang around one family in the 1920s, in one district. There were no Peaky Blinders in 1920s Birmingham when the series is set. They had disappeared. There were men that had been Peaky Blinders, but there were no gangs of Peaky Blinders. There were still some nasty men and little gangs, but the rampant ruffianism that had bedeviled and blighted the lives of the hard-working poor and the police had gone. The term Peaky Blinder is a generic term for the hooligans of Birmingham, backstreet folks who belonged to a, a numerous gangs. There was the Barford Street Gang. There was the Milk Street Gang, the Park Street Gang, the White House Street Gang in Aston. There were gangs in Summer Lane, in Highgate, in Borsalee, in Sparkbrook. My great-grandfather's brother, John, was one of the foremost sluggers of the Sparkbrook slugging gang. So there were numerous gangs and not just one gang around one family in one district. Those gangs are named not after a weapon, but after a fashion. So the story goes that the flat caps were taken off in a fight, as we see in the series, and slashed across the forehead. Now, let me get my flat cap to show you something. Just uh, bear with us right now. He's just getting out of his office for a while. So uh, just bear with me for a little while. He's been, he'll be right back. And uh, for those of you, please, please re- bear in mind that if you listen to this on Spotify and not watching this on YouTube, there is uh, there, there won't be visualized. So try to picture it because not everyone might be watching this on YouTube. Some, some might be watching this on Spotify as well. Right. So we're going to Sorry, not watching, but listening. Okay. They're violent men. They're very violent men. Now, if you have a flat cap, it's soft. Mm. If I'm going to use it as a weapon, I've got to fold it, haven't I? Mm. By the time I folded it, the person I'm fighting would have beaten me up. Yeah. If I try to grab hold of it with razor blades, I cut my own fingers and hand. But the other thing is, Erland, disposable safety razor blades were not patented by King Gillette in America until the early 20th century. They were not sold in great numbers in England until just before the First World War, by which time the real Peaky Blinders had disappeared. And they were too expensive for poorer men to buy. So it's a myth. Secondly... The original Peaky Blinders did not wear flat caps. They wore yeah. a hat, excuse me, they wore a hat called a billy cock, a kind of bowler hat. And they had very short hair, but a lot of them had a quiff, a bit of hair at the front, which they plastered over their forehead. And so they pulled the billy cock over one eye to show off the quiff. Hence, it blinded the eye. When the flat cap came in, they did the same. What's the peak doing to that? Mm. Blinding the eye. I've got photos that I can send you of oh, the with and of the Billy Cock wearing the Billy Cock. Mm. So the Peaky Blinders was a fashion. It was a kind of hat. They wore the daft. Remember the kind of scarf that I mentioned earlier on? Yes. Hobnail boots and bell-bottom trousers. Mm. Very tight to the knee and then wide trousers. And they were... Hooligans. They were violent men who enjoyed fighting. They disappeared in the early 20th century. Why? A variety of factors. First of all, stronger policing. Now, in the series, 
if you remember, there's a policeman that he sent over from Northern yeah. Ireland to put down the gang. Yeah. Remember him? Uh, Joe Campbell. Yeah, Major Campbell. He's loosely based on Charles Horton Rafter. Mm. Campbell's a strict Protestant, and Rafter was a Protestant from Northern Ireland. Birmingham's chief council from 1899. But unlike Campbell, Rafter was not sectarian. His deputy was Michael McManus, an Irish Catholic from Mayo in the west of Ireland. Mm. Birmingham's police was badly undermanned. Rafter went on a swift campaign of recruitment of very fit young men. They had to be five foot ten. And that's as I understood it in the series, most of them were Irish as well. Some of them were Irish. About seven to ten percent of the police force was Irish. The rest were English and a few Welsh. Mm. So the population of Birmingham's Irish in 1900 was about one percent born in Ireland. Mm. Seven to ten percent were Irish in the police force. That means there were seven times to ten times as many policemen who were Irish. Now, in the in the series, uh, uh, there is quite a lot of corruption with the police from the people. I understand. Keep in mind that they were just one gang, so probably easier to corrupt into with their gang. But was there corruption in the police force as well? No, or? not at this stage, because the real Peaky Blinders were not organised crime gangs. Mm. They were fighting gangs, so they were fighting the police. There was no corruption. They weren't making money. They were poorer men. So Rafter goes on a campaign of very quick recruitment. Many of the Peaky Blinders were like my great-grandfather, Derek. He was only five foot four. They were smaller men. There were a few taller ones, but most were smaller men. The police had to be five foot ten. They had to go around in pairs in the toughest neighbourhoods to fight. And the story in the Birmingham police was that Rafter asked his men three things when they recruited them. Can you read? Can you write? Can you fight? Mm. They had to fight. So stronger policing, which was supported by the poorer working class who have been bullied by the Peaky Blinders, who are now coming out to act as witnesses, which before they wouldn't have done. Secondly, stronger sentences. Before Rafter came in, an attack on a policeman, a, a, a Peaky Blinder might get sent down to prison for two months or a two-pound fine. Now they have to have a six-month imprisonment, which is the most that a magistrate can impose. Any serious offence, they'll have to go to a higher court. So you've got stronger policing, stricter sentencing. But at the same time, Erwin, they're organic. there are organic social forces happening. So some a few concerned clergymen and women are opening up what we would now call youth clubs. Mm. Football clubs are starting, attached to churches. Boxing clubs, which attract lots of tough lads. And just as the gangs are disappearing, a new form of entertainment becomes really popular. The cinema. By 1910-11, young lads in Birmingham and Manchester of 12, 13, 14 are going, what we used to call the pictures, two and three nights a week. The police like that. That means they're not on the street joining the gangs. And on a Saturday and a Sunday, if they don't go to watch a game of football, they're playing football on waste ground. So social forces, legal forces, policing forces all come together. And the, by 1910, the Birmingham newspapers are writing about the peakers, Peaky Blinders in the past tense. Now, what happens to those men? 
and disappear, as I assume? They disappear as a force, but let's take a man called Henry Lightfoot. In 1895, he's the only man I've come across who's actually called a Peaky Blinder in court. He's violent and he's a thief. But from 1907, the local police say he's trying to turn his life around. And in 1914, just after the war is declared... Are they actually trying to rehabilitate him? He's, rehabilit- he's rehabilitated himself. Mm. And the police are supporting him where they can. And is, that, that- is that rare in the 20s that police are actually trying to help rehabilitate? Yeah, that, that, uh, Rafter is very influential in bringing in courts for children and trying to bring in police officers that look after children that, from difficult homes or are breaking the law. He, re- he, he really is a man who's very much ahead of his time. Mm. So in 1914... Henry Lightfoot, the only man to ever be called a Peaky Blinder in court, as far as I could find, is joins up in the army to fight Germany straight after the war is declared. He's 41, Ireland, and married. He doesn't need to join up. He's thrown out of the army because he's insubordinate and he threatens to strike an officer. The next year, in 1915, he joins up again. He's sentenced to time in what was called the Glass House, the army prison. Again, for insubordination, he comes out and on the second day of the bloody Battle of the Somme, Henry Lightfoot, the Peaky Blinder, who broke the laws of his country, was badly injured fighting for his country. His relatives later wrote that he came back to England a changed man. He is not on his own. Mm. There are many like that I could tell you about. However, a few of the former Peaky Blinders, like Billy Kimber and his associates, desert from the army and then they regroup in 1920 with the Birmingham gang take over the rackets in the Midlands and North, become England's first major organised gang gang, albeit semi-organised and then in 1921 go to war over the rackets in southern England with the Sabini gang Before we move on, I wanted to ask you a little bit about women in the Peaky Blinders as well, because were they as dangerous as the men, if not more dangerous? No, they weren't as dangerous. I have some indication, some evidence of younger women who joined the Peaky Blinders in gang fights with other streets, throwing stones and supplying their boyfriends with stones. There's more evidence of this in Manchester and Salford, but there's not much evidence it's in Birmingham. And regarding the organised crime gangs of the 20s and 30s, although Aunt Paul in the series is an important character and she emphasises the strength of working class women, there were no female gangsters in the organised gangs of the 20s and 30s. The men, the leaders, Billy Kimber, Darby Sabini, Kimber with his second wife, Sabini, with his only wife, wanted to buy a middle-class lifestyle for their wives and children. Right. So who? So when? where does Darby Sabini? Because we haven't spoken much about okay. him. Where does he come into the picture? Darby Sabini. In 19, March 12, 1921, a bookmaker called Alfie Solomon. Solomon's I was actually quite surprised to find out that he was one real as well. In... Yeah. So Alfie Solomon... I interviewed his younger brother, Erland, in 1987, Simeon Solomon. He was not an Orthodox Jew, as portrayed in the series, dressed like an Orthodox Jew, with a Yiddish background. 
Alfie Solomon was a North London Jew, not from the East End, the Jewish quarter of Whitechapel and Spitalfield. His father was quite well off in Covent Garden. The family were Anglo-Jewish. They'd been established for at least two to three generations. So Alfie Solomon was a secular Jew, not an Orthodox Jew, and he wasn't from a Yiddish-speaking background. A Jewish bookmaker, as Alfie Solomon's brother told me, would not take bets if they seemed to be Jewish. So he took the name of, of, of a, what he thought was an English name, Sidney Lewis. And he betted under the name Sidney Lewis. And on the 12th of March, 1922, Alfie Solomon is taking bets at Sandown. Now, he'd had an honourable war. He'd fought in the services for four years. He hadn't deserted. He had been a few little petty crimes for, for betting, illegal betting, but he wasn't a gangster. Although the older gang books say he was, there is absolutely no evidence he was a gangster until March 1922. He's standing on a stall. What's what making him turn to crime? Considering, he had, considering that he had such a decent background and... Not really involved much in the general life. It doesn't sound like he has much reason. No, he's standing on a crime. stool at Sandown Park. The bookmakers have to pay half a crown, 12 and a half pence for the stool each race to stand up. They have to pay half a crown, 12 and a half pence each race for a stick of chalk to write the horses on the board and the odds. They have to pay half a crown for the sponge and half a crown for the bucket of water for each race to wipe off the runners of the previous race, so they can chalk up the runners of the next race. That's about 50 pence a race. Six races, three quid. A skilled man would be lucky to earn that in 1920-21. This is big money when there's hundreds of bookmakers at some meetings. So Alfie Solomon is standing on his stool, and a horrible, vile man from Birmingham called Thomas Armstrong goes up to him and wants a bet on the nod. In other words, he wants a bet for credit. Now, let me ask you a question, Erland. He's a gangster. If the horse loses, is he going to pay Alfie Solomon? Okay. No. If it wins, though, does he want pay? I would say very much yes. Very much so. So Alfie Solomon refuses to take the bet, but the horse wins. Armstrong comes back for his money. Solomon refuses to take it. His brother, Simeon, told me in 1987 that he was beaten up bloodily by one of your lot from Birmingham. Mm. I found an account of the attack in a rare book by a man who was also there at the same time. Thomas Armstrong took off his binoculars very heavy, smashed them into the face of Armstrong, breaking his nose and his teeth. He fell backwards off the stool and Armstrong stamped on his head. Armstrong then went on the rampage and he so badly beat up an innocent Jewish bookmaker called Philip Jacobs that he later died of his injuries. Armstrong got away with it. People were too scared to come to court and say that he'd done it. Mm. That is the incident that transforms Alfie Solomon from a bookmaker to a gangster. As his brother told me, and as other older bookmakers from London told me in 1987, he turned to the godfather, or really the governor, of the East End Jewish underworld, mm. a shadowy but powerful figure called Edward Emmanuel. Edward Emmanuel's been a tearaway, a very hard-fighting man, 
but he's now running what are called spielers. Spielers is from a, a Yiddish word to talk, for to spiel. And it's where illegal gambling takes place on cards. And he wants to go legitimate. He wants to start a printing company, Erland, that will print racing lists of the runners for each race to go on the blackboards. Now, to do that, he's got to get rid of the Birmingham gang and their London allies, the Elephant Boys and the Camden Towns lot. Mm. But they're too powerful. But now the attack on Alfie Solomon gives him an opportunity. Solomon turns to Edward Emanuel, who's got a gang of Anglo-Jewish rough men from Whitechapel, Spitalfields. He knows they're not strong enough. Or, Alfie, or as they call them, the serious bakers. Yes, but they weren't. And they then call in an up-and-coming Anglo-Italian gangster from Clark and Mully, North London, called Darby Sabini. In 1987, I interviewed the son of the main enforcer of Derby Sabina. The enforcer was called Georgie Langer, real name Andrew Janicoli. Now, can you remember how Derby Sabini is shown in the series? Uh, I think he has a grey suit, right? He has a, just, uh, I, I vaguely remember him, yeah. Remember, he is, see, he's, he's really dressed elegantly. Yeah. He talks English with an Italian accent. But that's not. That's not the case at all, because he dresses as a commoner, doesn't he? Because uh, I remember from the documentary. Yeah, he dresses with an open-collared shirt with a flat cap. Isn't that because he thinks it's harder for the police to find him and no, arrest him? Because he's... That's a story that's been put out by people mm. elsewhere. He was an ordinary... He saw himself as an ordinary work bloke. He had no pretensions. He was not vain. He had a little car, and that was about as much as his vanity took to. Mm. Darby Sabini's real name is Octavia. And he's portrayed in the series with it, speaking English as if he's an Italian. Mm. He wasn't. He was Anglo-Italian. His mother was an English woman called Handley. His older brothers were named after his mother's brothers, Englishmen. His dad was from Italy, but came to England as a baby, as a youngster, a toddler. And he wasn't from Sicily. He was from northern Italy. They settled in a part of Clerkenwell Corners, known as the Hill, Saffron Hill, around the local Catholic church. So Sabini's got a gang of Anglo-Italians like himself, men of solely English heritage from the area and nearby in King's Cross, and they come together with the Anglo-Jewish tough nuts from the East End, including now, this Anglo-Jewish gang includes Alfie Solomon. And they pulled together a powerful force to take on the Birmingham gang, the Elephant Boys, and George Sage and his men from Camden Town. And in the spring or summer of 1921, England's first gang war between organised criminal gangs from different cities erupted on the racecourses of southern and southwestern England. How much is police involved in this general war? Is this, is this like a field day for them, having, being able to have so many arrests? I, I at first, the police are struggling because there's never been anything like this before. This is a new phenomenon. But eventually, the Birmingham gang overstretches itself. The police are now sending in lots of men to big meetings like Epsom. After one Epsom meeting, the Birmingham gang attack a lot of Jewish bookmakers from Leeds because they're changing allegiance from Kimber 
to Sabini. 17 of the Birmingham gang get sent down for long terms of imprisonment. They're some of the worst fighters and most fierce fighters. And then Edward Emmanuel, the clever man in the background, outwits Billy Kimber. He starts an organisation called the Bookmakers Protection Association. Paradoxically, and interestingly, my dad was president of the Birmingham Bookmakers Association in the late 70s and 80s. Now, what does he do? The racecourse authorities and the police are weary of this gang warfare and intimidation. So, Edward Emanuel pals up with a man called Beresford, a top bookmaker. They start this association. They get the support of the racecourse authorities and of the Metropolitan Police in the south of England. And guess what? They bring in Derby Sabini and his men as stewards, paid stewards to keep off the Birmingham gang. The Birmingham gang's got no chance now because the stewards have got the support of the police. Mm. So the war ends. There's a truce called. The Birmingham gang retains control of the Midlands and the north, the Sabinis, the south and the southwest of England. Now, a little bit, did you, and in the later seasons, we do get a brief, brief Italian, and you mentioned this as well uh, a little bit briefly. But was there Italian presence in Birmingham and London in the organized crime, or was there? Because it didn't seem, from what I gathered from what I doodled, it didn't seem to be much. That's the fiction in the, in the series. Was there Italian well, so, presence? So, for example, in the series, there's a big Chinese quarter in Birmingham, isn't there? Yeah. There wasn't. There were a few Chinese men came to Birmingham in 1917 from Liverpool, seamen, to work in the munitions industry. They disappeared when the war ended. Birmingham didn't get a Chinese quarter to really the 1960s and 70s, and really the late 70s and 80s. A few Chinese were coming to Birmingham after the Second World War. There was a small Italian quarter in Birmingham, perhaps a couple of thousand people at the most, in and around where Curzon Street Railway Station is now becoming HS2's terminal. There was a much larger Italian population in London, in Clerkenwell, where Sabini came from, but many of them were northern Italian. The Birmingham Italians were mostly from the area between Naples and Rome, from the town, around the town of Sora. And they were not gangsters. In the series, there's a, a gang family, an Italian gangster family from Birmingham called Changretta. I don't know if you remember yeah. them. Yeah. And the brother and the father are killed. The father and son are killed. Mm. And then Lucha Changretta comes over from New York to Avenger. Mm. I'm friends with the descendants of the real Changrettas. They were not gangsters. And the family was an honourable family. Martino Changretta came to Birmingham as an indentured worker for another Italian who came to Birmingham beforehand, had done quite well selling ice cream, and went back to his village and brought over teenage boys, paying money to their parents. And then they had to walk the streets night after night in the spring and summer selling ice cream mm. to try and pay back what they owed. Eventually, Mr. Martino paid back Martino, sorry, Martino Chagretta paid back that money and he married an English woman. And they had many children. And he took the name Marty as an Englishman. He was naturalised. In 1920, he was the foreman of a demolition company that was clearing all the space for what we call our Hall of Memory, the place where we remember the men who died in the First World War. Yeah. 
and there were racist letters in the local newspapers attacking an Italian at this work. He soon shot them up, Mr. Martin did, Mr. Changretta, because he wrote in the following week to say that he was naturalised British, that he'd fought in the Second South African War, that his son-in-laws were all English and married to his daughters, who were born in Britain, and that when the Hall of Memories were opened, it would have a book of remembrance. And in that book of remembrance would be the name of his oldest son who died fighting for Britain in the First World War. And in the Second World War, Erlen, yeah. the last remaining son of Mr. and Mrs. Changretta was killed after he'd landed in Italy fighting for the Allies. So you can understand the family are keen for me to get across mm. the reality of the yeah. Changretters. They were not gangsters. They were an honourable, hard-working, decent and loyal family. Mm. I'm glad you brought that up. And some, something that I wanted to ask as well, I wanted to ask this earlier, but in the, in the series, it kind of seemed like a lot of veterans, especially in the Birmingham area, kind of turned to crime. How common was it that a lot of veterans from the World War One would turn yeah. to crime? I think it was the opposite, Erland, that actually a lot of the Peaky Blinders who joined up to fight in the war came back changed men, the ones that survived. And th there is this belief that's around the series that these men came back brutalised by the war. The real Peaky Blinders were brutal before the First World War. They were brutal before the First World War, Erland. Because in the series, it seemed like they're kind of angry that they, they've been left alone and that they, they didn't, the country didn't care about them like after the fight, fight was fighting for, for their freedom, you know? Yeah, that, that, there's no doubt where the series has been really important. It's been drawing attention to post-traumatic stress disorder for veterans, mm. to the fact that working-class men who fought their country were promised a land fit for heroes and homes fit for heroes, and it never happened. But Birmingham was not a city on the edge of revolution in 1919. Mm. And far from being a violent city, it had been transformed into one of the more, to one of the less violent cities of England. Mm. It had been, if not the most violent, one of the most violent in the 1890s and early 20th century. Mm. Now, there's still horrible, nasty men. Yeah. But there is not that widespread backstreet thuggery that there was before the First World War era. It's really important to get that point over. Yeah. So now back to Alfie and Darby Sabini, because there is a, situ a situation between them, a shooting incident that gets Sabini to the hospital, and eventually there's a court session, isn't there? Well, Kim, Sabini actually shoots Billy Kimber. So the, after the outbreak of the war in, in March, both gangs realise that they're pretty evenly matched and Darby Sabini, real name Octavio, invites Kimber and the McDonald's to a meeting at his house in King's Cross. It seems that there's plenty of drink and it's all going well. And as Kimber and the McDonald's are leaving, Alfie Solomon turns up. Now, the Birmingham gang and their London allies were anti-Semitic. They were racist. They were vile. They extorted extra money from the Jewish bookmakers. And Kimber goes for Alfie Solomon, swearing at him and using vile racist terminology. They struggle and a shot is fired 
and Kimber is found out on the street with a, a shot a, a shot in his back. He'd been shot in his back. He refuses to press charges. Alfie Solomon hands himself in, said it was Kimber's gun, etc., etc. But in court, they have to dismiss the prosecution because Kimber will not give any evidence. And he says that any man that uses a gun is a coward because I'd rather shoot myself in the head than use mm. anything but these, which was a bit of a lie because I found evidence of Kimber using weapons before the First World War. But Kimber is shot. He later gets revenge when he's recovered from his wound. He and a big group of Birmingham gangsters attack Solomon, his brother, and other Jewish bookmakers and viciously beat them up at Bath Race Course in the summer of 1921. So one one did started the client or crime in Birmingham. How well did the, did the police do the job of cleaning up? They did a brilliant job crime? because, but it's also not just about the police. It's about the working class having confidence in the police to give evidence against thugs, and also these organic social changes. And I'll give you an example, a couple of examples. Hmm. My great uncle George Wood, my mum's uncle, was a very very hard man. He was born in 1916. Uh, sorry, 1915, he grew up in a street called Whitehouse Street. Now, in the 1880s and 90s, Whitehouse Street had an infamous gang in Aston called the Simpson Brothers. They, they were nasty, brutal, horrible men. And they would attack the police at any opportunity. My uncle later became a member of the 2nd Battalion, the SAS, in the Second World War. So you can imagine how tough he was. He was dropped behind enemy lines with other SAS men, men before D-Day to blow up railways and petroleum stores, etc. He told me that in the 1920s, when he was a youngster, if there was a fight, when the kid went down, the fight was over. And if the police come, they would all stop. Yep. 25 years before Erland, the kid on the floor would have been beaten with kicked with kicked with boots, hit with belt buckles, and the policeman would have been attacked. So there's a massive shift. And I think boxing has a large part to play with that, learning to dis self-discipline and self-respect, as does the, the police were more respected in the 20s and 30s overall. Hmm. Thank you so much for coming on. I think you covered basic of the real picture planners you're always welcome back to the series and of course as always when we do talk about these real events of based on series how much from one to ten whiskey glasses would you rate the series ah i won't rate the series at all i'm a historian <laughs> series for those that look it. can i just finish with one last one last thing yeah gangsterism is not glamorous gangsters are not glamorous we need to recognise gangsters, what they are, bullies who are prey upon others. Enjoy the series, but realise the reality is very different. Do you feel like the series kind of glorified a little bit too much? I wouldn't life? like to say that because I, I, it would be wrong of me as a historian to talk about this series in particular. Mm. What I will say, Erland, is that I think gangster series in general and gangster films in general, glamorise brutal men. Mm. And mafia dons are not men who are respectful, who are kindly, and who are generous. Mm. 
they make money from misery. Yeah, I was I was talking to my brother, and there's quite there's quite a lot of drinking in the series. I was talking to my brother, and then I was suggesting we could try to drink as much as than doing the series on a day to day basis. And he th- he didn't think it was a good idea. Of course, I'll have a few glasses for the occasion for this episode, but that's. Uh, <coughs> I don't think I'm going to try as much to drink as much as they do in in the series on a regular basis. I don't think I don't wouldn't recommend it. No, I <laughs> So before you go, do you have anything you wish to promote? Anything you want to share on the social media where people might find you if they're interested? Yeah, I, I, I tell, you know, people want to find out more about the reality. I've written three books. One, the first one is called Peaky Blinders, The Real Story, which looks at the real Peaky Blinders and their four runners, the sluggers. Uh, then the second book is called Peaky Blinders, A Legacy, which really looks at the gang war of 1921, the background to it and the follow-up. And my latest book is called Peaky Blinders, The Aftermath. The Birmingham gang, Ireland, disappears by the Second World War. Mm. England's first major organised crime gang. I would look at why that happens. By contrast, the Sabina gang, although pushed off the race courses in the mid-20s by strong police action and the race course authorities, regroups in London, particularly extorted protection money from nightclub owners and illegal gambling club owners in Soho and becomes the prototype for later gangs in London. So that's what the aftermath is about, the latest book. That's a serious kind of ruin it for you when you when you watch it as a historian you can't watch historical my wife will tell you it's impossible for a <laughs> social historian to watch a history series about the period they're working at after the first five minutes of episode one series one my wife stormed out of the room saying <laughs> are you going to stop moaning <laughs> that never happened no that's not right <laughs> so it's very difficult because you might be enjoying the drama but the other part of you saying is, no, this is not the reality. Yeah. Thank you so much. And I want to ask as well, where can people buy the book and find them if they, if they want to read them? Thank you. You can get them off Amazon. Hmm. They're all available on Amazon. Thank you very much for listening. If I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, please check out some of our other episodes and we're definitely going to find something you might be interested in. Please like, share and subscribe. This has been well that age well. My name is Alan and I'll see you next time. Thank you very much for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.